Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In our Week in IndyCar series, we do have a fairly fun and packed episode for you. We're kicking off with Pato O'Ward. Just got back from Austria where he made his FIA Formula 2 debut. Made it with MP Motorsports, which I have been trying to joke that that's actually my own team. It's not, unfortunately. But a last-minute, no-testing, no-anything debut in Austria at the Red Bull Ring. I would say valuable weekend in terms of education for young Pato. Also announced that he will be shifting the rest of his season priority to Japan. The Super Formula Series there. So those are the two primary things we speak on. Then you guys sent in a lot of great questions for him. Bit of a surprise last-minute guest following Pato, and that being another young Indy Lights champ. That being Pennsylvania's Sage Karam, who's going to be stepping in for Pato now that we know for sure he won't be back in the number 31 Carlin Racing Chevy. Don't believe he's going to be back for the rest of the year. He doesn't believe he will, but again, we'll see. But great to speak with Sage. Got a chance with a sponsor he's going to speak about, one I'd never heard of. That will allow him to get in the car for Toronto and certainly hope to have him back on a more regular basis. Then we close with young Hunter McElray, who I think it's pretty interesting lineage to know that he is born in California, flagged in terms of lineage, New Zealand, raised in Australia, and happens to drive for last week's Road to Indy guest, team owner Augie Pabst third. So spent a good little while here with Hunter speaking about his shift to America. I think you're really going to enjoy the kid. He speaks on getting to meet five-time champion uh, New Zealand's own Scott Dixon and was texting with Dixie after we interviewed Hunter and was had some really nice things to say about him as well. So pretty cool to see. As usual, and as I try and do, try and make an audible each week on questions you send in for me separate from my guests. And if you send in a lot, I tend to move those after them. If the list isn't too deep, I tend to just move those right up front. So that's what we're going to do this week. I'll get to those in just a moment. Definitely need to say thank you here to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA for their ongoing and unwavering support in particular coming up here among all of them we have something rather fun taking place in just a little over a week in toronto the actual home of one of our key key partners and friends of the podcast uh, Derek koska and his outfit there in toronto and looking at what they have coming knowing that for them the uh, toronto indie race is truly their equivalent of the indy 500 They're doing a big, big old turnout for that. So if you're going to be in Toronto, you're going to be attending the Toronto Indy event, please stop by. Uh, They are going big. So it's not just selling the usual stuff, T-shirts and stickers and you name it, hats. It's a pretty monstrous memorabilia thing that they're putting on. I wish I could be there. I will readily admit I don't have the money to buy any of it, but I can at least dream. But we're talking... Race used helmets, fire suits, trophies, and a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I saw some of the list of names. Uh, all this, again, authentic, real, real stuff. Uh, Paul Tracy, Tony Kanon, Scott Dixon, Greg Moore, Dario Franchitti, Juan Montoya, 
Elio Castroneves, Alex Zanardi, Michael Andretti. It's going to be pretty serious. So normally when you get to show up to the track and you say, hey, cool, I want to buy a shirt or a hat or whatever, celebrating my favorite driver, you can do all those things. In particular, if your favorite driver is James Hinchcliffe or maybe Robert Wickens, this is just a rare chance to actually have some amazing, amazing memorabilia uh, from IndyCar's past at the event itself that you can buy. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, I want all of it. But anyways, someone else needs it. So I'm recording this. This is we're at 9.47 p.m. California. I'll give you guys a little bit of an update. As you know, I do my best to bring you guys into my life, not just what I do for a living, being a, a sports writer and reporter, focusing on motor sports, but also you know, I figure you all probably hear enough of my voice and or maybe read enough of my stuff, uh, see the videos or whatever, to realize that try not to be, um, try not to put too much of the home business into things but as of late some of you may know that my wife and i have been uh, having some challenges of our own and going to keep this super brief and then get to your questions but yeah it's been a long 24 48 hours uh, about three o'clock this morning um, had to call uh, the local fremont fire department and uh, ambulance called the police as well which dispatched an ambulance and had to had to admit my wife to the emergency room again um just she's been enduring she's been enduring back pain and maybe just pain in general to a degree that i have never witnessed uh, among anybody and just having known a lot of people in my life, worked with a lot of people, drivers who've been in hellacious crashes, um, my father who went through cancer and lost that battle, and you know, just having seen pain uh, taking over someone's life and what it can be like, it's just been, I mean, insane comes to mind. It's It's been almost an out-of-body experience to witness the amount of pain she's been in for about a week now. Uh, six days or so with her back. Um, you might know, you might have heard in a recent episode about a month ago maybe, um, she underwent two back surgeries to uh, alleviate uh, the cancer was, that was attacking um, her discs and such. So uh, it's just been, yeah, she spent her birthday on Saturday flat as a board, unable to move, just... Um, yeah, you know, taking whatever the highest dose of meds we can get, and it's just not even close to being enough. So it's just been brutal. Uh, and again, none of this is being said for sympathy. I'm just sharing with you probably why you're not hearing my voice being super high and full of energy. Cause, uh, yeah, yesterday was a 23 hour day. Uh, we both got up at about seven and, um, I mean, I got home from the ER at 6 a.m., and I'd know she didn't get much sleep, so um, it's just been brutal. So we're hoping to get some direction on what new thing has happened or what thing that we thought was going to be fixed with one of the previous surgeries in June uh, maybe has gone wrong, gone backwards. But um, just thinking about the amount of pain she was in that kicked off this entire thing uh, mid-March, 
I'm sorry, mid-May. That led to her being rushed to the ER while I was in Indy and having seen her face and gotten, gotten a feel by FaceTime, the amount of pain she was in. This is actually worse, like significantly worse. Um, so just mentioning this because that's why you probably hear whatever it is in my voice. That's a little bit different. Um, last thing I'll just mention on this, and it's just a further appreciation for how incredible she is as a human being. As I was driving home from the hospital here just 10 or 15 minutes ago, just trying to think like, where does that come from? What is that? I mean, we see that in racing, right? Where did this performance come from? Where did this otherworldly performance, uh, motivation, desire, where do you summon that from? And that's probably why we keep coming back because there's no real immediate answer. Uh, it's, it's a mystery, but it's, boy, is it a fascinating mystery to try and understand how willpower finds however many tents are needed to put that thing on pole at wherever, where you go, that how, how did you do that? That's just, it, it's, <laughs> that's not of this earth or an Alexander Rossi passing everything in sight. Alexander Rossi winning by a million miles at road America. How do you do that? What is that? I mean, we can't, we can't quantify it. We know it exists, but we can't quantify it. And that again, fascinating. I think of that with my wife. And so that's what was coming to mind on the drive home. The amount of pain she has been in for the past many days that ultimately led to a can't take this anymore. We have to go. We cannot keep trying to manage this at home. Um, was thinking, is this the Marine in her? Uh, you might know that she served her country with pride uh, in the Marines. Is this the Marine in her coming out? The, the, the strength of a Marine that we associate with the, of the four branches, what is you know commonly known as the most fierce, the most, the most. And yeah, just realize that actually, no, this is not the Marine in her coming out being able to clench her teeth and gut it out through things where you honestly, if this was me and this is, there's no jokes I'd be asking to be put in a medically induced coma because I know I could not handle that amount of pain. Um, it's not because she's a Marine. Those are the undefinable, amazing core inner strength she has that made her a Marine that made her while in high school with growing up in the projects with no money, the absence of money, massive, massive, uh, hand to mouth existence, very poor living in the projects smartest kid in her class, no hope of advancement. She could have chosen one of the other branches to try and get her GI bill to be able to go to college, something that would have been an, a cruise by comparison. But instead she chose the Marines because she knew it was the hardest. And so while I can't define that inner thing that makes her fight 
and maybe someday in the future I'll share what that 23 hour day was like, but just watching this, <sighs> the reason she and I have never and would never get into an actual fist fight. And I don't mean domestic abuse. I mean, just like let's put on the boxing gloves. She boxes by the way. Uh, the reason that would never happen Although I have a lot of size on her and strength, there is something inside of her that would not stop until I was unconscious on the ground. Again, I don't know where that comes from, but we get to recognize that in race car drivers that we marvel at. Just amazing. Uh, Just amazing to see her just being an inspiration at a time where all you want is for that pain to go away. So I'm hoping here tomorrow morning, late morning, early afternoon, something like that. The uh, July 3rd, I'm hoping we get back the information from the imaging, from the MRIs that were done today and find out what the heck has gone wrong and uh, whether uh, I'm guessing it's going to be a new surgery, if not surgeries, Find out what it is, get it fixed, and get her on the road to recovery because it has stopped every aspect of her life. And anybody here with a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, um, it's it's a really hard thing to witness. All you want to do is make that go away. And if you ever, if you ever want to be reminded of how much power in the world you do not wield and how much in control of the world you are not. (laughs) Stare at the person you love more than anything. See them screaming in agony 15, 20, 30 times a day, and knowing you got nothing. There's nothing you can do. You can hold a hand. You can rub a forehead. You can stroke their hair. You can... Nothing. Uh... So I know plenty of you know that just, yeah, humbling thing, not a bad thing to have these lessons learned. Just sometimes wish that they would come in a, uh, in an environment where less pain was involved. So with all that said, thank you for indulging me there letting me share some of that with you. And again, I appreciate, uh, appreciate the fact that so many of you have asked and continue to ask and thank you to the many folks that I work with directly in the industry, that is race car drivers, team owners, mechanics, engineers, think of everybody in every position that send texts, emails, direct messages, um, the outpouring, constant outpouring. It, it never, it hasn't stopped. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Just thank you again to everybody. So just want to give you that little update. And let's get going with your questions. Then let's get rocking and rolling with Pato Award, Sage Karam, and Hunter McElray on the Weekend IndyCar on a little podcast I named after myself. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and also Bell Racing Helmets USA. We're going to open up with Bob Fay, who says, Marshall, you point out, the fact that many times that if IndyCar is serious about more manufacturers coming to compete, that they would allow hybrid technology into the rules. I've been thinking that for some time, and I always thought that the push-to-pass feature in IndyCar would be a perfect opportunity 
to use hybrid power to overtake. Is that a viable idea at all? I think it is, Bob. And I'm just prefacing this because uh, just it's like using the word allegedly, right? Uh, I can't say it's going to happen. Allegedly, I keep hearing, but hearing from some pretty smart people that hybrid, something hybrid might be coming. And whether that's 21 with the new engine or 22 with the new chassis and then packaged into that chassis, assisting the new 2.4 liter twin turbo V6 engines. Not sure. And hey, it may not happen at all. But if it were to happen, I think you might be on to exactly what it could be, Bob. I've heard that suggested as something that might happen. So instead of some hellacious LMP1 hybrid era stuff like we had from what, roughly 2013, 2014 through 2017, where, you know, these LMP1 cars from Audi, from Porsche, from Toyota, you know, would throw down, good Lord, 500, 600 plus horsepower, electric horsepower on top of the internal combustion engines. In some cases, the actual hybrid power deployment, we'll just call it electric horsepower, exceeded, it was more than the combustion engine. I don't think we're talking anything like that, Bob. Those systems are big and heavy, and you can't really do that to an Indy car without sacrificing a lot of performance. The relative lightweight of an open-wheel car like an Indy car, that's a big part of its performance. And yeah, the goal is to go to higher horsepower engines, combustion engines, all that's great. But if you start bogging that down with an extra 50 pounds here and 75 there, um, it's going to start looking like me in a foot race. And we don't want that to happen. So I think if this were to happen, we might be talking something like that, where, you know, if the roughly 40-ish horsepower that we talk about getting that push-to-pass boost to the Chevrolet power plants and the Honda engines. Could it be a little bit more, 50, 60, 70? I don't know. Um, but I've heard that might end up being it, uh, the mindset of how it would be deployed if it were to happen compared to here's crazy power, on-demand, huge torque fill coming off of the corners. Turbo engines already have a lot of torque. Uh, granted, there's usually turbo lags so there could be a big instant fill coming off the corners if the series wanted to do that uh could it be on demand you know something where you know, if i'm thinking push to pass i'm usually thinking you're accelerating harder to either get away or defend or try and catch up could there be some options on how one might hit use that push to pass button so that if we're just talking a relatively brief deployment of 50 horsepower or whatever the number is, could that be something where you can try and use that, you know, say have it for bottom end, top end, something like that. Because the big difference here, uh, really something worth knowing, is that with the additional turbo boost that comes with push to pass, uh, that stays with you for a certain amount of time, right? That you can engage that, use that up. If we're just talking measurement, it's measured in seconds. How many seconds of push to pass? With hybrid 
boost. It's a finite thing. <laughs> it's not, hey, I'm going to want 20 seconds of it, 40 seconds of it. Uh, yeah, you can do that with turbo because it's just the electronics saying, hey, we're going to make more boost. We're going to allow more boost. This is a case where you're going to store, call it just electric horsepower in that battery. And then with that push to pass, you are deploying it and draining that battery right away till you can go into another braking zone and recharge it again. So it just might be an interesting thing for them to think about if they were to do this, since you really would be more picking and choosing a short burst where that electric horsepower helped you instead of say along the full front straight at road America, where you're getting a chug along and just get that benefit the entire time. So could be interesting. Uh, the other note here is of course, well, what about ovals? Uh, we're not breaking at Indy. Uh, we're not going to be charging that up. I know that I've mentioned this a few times, but one of the solutions out there is something that is driven off of the turbocharger uh, propeller shafts. And actually, it's just basically a, a, a spinning, a rotational type charging into a battery system there that could be deployed. That would then drain, obviously, some turbo boost and reaction from those turbos, but it does exist, has been used. It's an off-the-shelf solution that could be purchased. So a couple things here for them to consider. Um, obviously, push-to-pass has not really been a big oval thing. You know, that, that really hasn't been a big part of the, uh, the oval culture with the use of push-to-pass in, uh, I guess, this decade so much. So would IndyCar just say no? It's going to continue to only be a road and street course thing, or knowing that the Indy 500 is indeed the biggest race of the year is this hybrid aspect, something they would say, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to want to promote this. We would want our biggest race to be the one where we don't give our manufacturers a chance to promote the hybridosity. That's not a word. I just made it up, but the, uh, the hybridness that they uh, are obviously spending money on and wanting to use from a marketing standpoint go next to jordan darwin hey jordan he says hey i read that mario andretti wrecked in one of the two-seaters earlier in june how is he in the car not sure if he drove it at road america but know that he had uh not done it in a few rounds to start the race i heard a little something about it jordan and this is just me apologizing not being uh, in the air heading to the races as i normally am these are the little minutiae bits that i usually pick up on and commit to memory Heard a little something about it. Really did not bother to go and learn more. So um, I failed you, Jordan. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, let's go to Ben Cohen. Says, MP, can you explain the thought process of IndyCar with the schedule and its breaks in the schedule? Says, I understand that it would be difficult to run each weekend and teams need breaks, etc. But it always seems odd to me that there are these large three-week breaks uh, in between races throughout the re, uh, throughout the season. Well, interesting one, Ben. If I am thinking about what we are just coming off of, which is truly grueling and punishing stretch, this couple of week break is. <laughs> I know it's something that teams are just so thankful. I mean, beyond thankful to have. Uh, there's also been a test or two that will have been completed during this break. So that's another thing that, believe it or not, although many teams are thoroughly exhausted, 
Um, we do have a case where, you know, they, since we don't have many significant holes in the calendar, once we get going from start to finish, the little opportunities, the few opportunities they have to go do private testing, they're going to fill usually at least one or two of these windows with those private tests. Another thing too, and I realize it might be semantics or pedantic or something with a tick at the end. We had the Road America race on the 22nd and 23rd of June. Uh, we obviously had last weekend, the 29th and 30th, which was off. We're going to have this weekend, the 6th and 7th, that is off, followed by Toronto. So at least the way my brain works, uh, it's two weekends off. And that's still not a ton for people who haven't seen family, kids, dogs, uh, very much. So I think I'm okay with the gaps here. I mean, if we look at how the weekend, the, the, Jesus, sorry, guys, my brain's a little fried. Um, I could go through and try and edit all this stuff out, but it'd take me forever. So please bear with me. Uh, we opened the season in St. Pete, March 10th. There was uh, one weekend off, then we raced the following weekend. So call it, you know, 14 days afterwards, we raced again in Coda. We then raced approximately same kind of 14 days later in Barber. The following weekend, we were in Long Beach. We then had uh, three plus weeks off until might even been a little bit longer to the Indy Grand Prix. Obviously, we had the end of April rookie orientation program at Indianapolis. So that was something where teams didn't get a whole lot of time uh, truly off. And also considering that they also needed to complete uh, chassis modifications to install or finish up the installation and build of their speedway cars with the new advanced frontal protection device uh, that had the tubs needed to get stripped down, go out, have a lot of new uh, bulkhead type stuff built in to mount it, etc. Right. So it, I realize that as a racing fan, it's just looking at going, hey, you raced April 14th. Then you didn't race till April 11th. That's a big gap. No question. Just knowing that on the uh, behind the scenes side, it really truly was not much of a break. So we then run through the GP, the Indy 500, then go straight into a double header at Detroit. Why? Because we just want to cripple people even more. And then, hey, guess what? A big, no, 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 not a big break. Uh, we race Saturday. <laughs> We're on track Thursday in texas race saturday night uh and then we get a weekend off about seems like a third of the drivers are racing at lamal the following weekend um and then we went to road america and then we get this little break here honestly this is the big thing folks are looking forward to a little bit of time off before toronto then go straight into iowa then go straight into mid-Ohio, then finally another break. And that one there between July 28th, Ben, and August 18 at Pocono, that's maybe the one where I would have to agree that, yeah, that, that one seems like we're, we're taking a little bit of excessive time off. Also, knowing the amount of races that we have on the calendar and some of the what they call the date equity, we know the middle of July is going to be Toronto. Uh, we know that the final weekend of July, you know, and or the first, you know, August 1st or 2nd, something in that range is going to be mid-Ohio. 
you know, some of these things too are just building tradition. So I get, you know, it's that third weekend in June we know now is going to be Road America. I'm okay with some of these gaps here. And then, but again, realizing that, well, we do get a quick little relative break. Uh, a nice one, though, leading into Pocono. Right after Pocono, the following weekend's Gateway. Following weekend after that's Portland. And then we have uh, a couple weeks until we go to Monterey for the finale. So I hear you. I know that we'd love to have stuff every weekend if possible. I'll just throw this out as maybe a consideration if there's any possibility here. Uh, it is awesome. It's It truly is awesome to have the Road to Indy partnering with IndyCar at as many venues as possible. I know the turnouts wouldn't be huge, and I realize this would not necessarily be a big financial winner, but you know, is it possible during some of these gaps where we have a couple weeks, two, three weeks, to say, hey, why don't we pack up all three tiers of the Road to Indy plus the Global MX-5 Cup, the Mazda Miatas that put on one of the best shows in all of motor racing, which is sanctioned by IndyCar, package that up and say, hey, we're going to go somewhere that IndyCar doesn't go, right? Name a track that you missed that we once went to, probably not an oval, but uh, is it going to be Seattle, right? The old Seattle Raceway, boy, that hasn't been used much. Uh, Could we do something in the Fontana infield? Could it, again, I'm just totally spitballing things here. A lot of it could be nonsense. Could it be VIR? Could it be Lime Rock um, and on and on? Could it be Canadian Tire Motorsport Park? Good old Mo Sport. Could we have kind of a, hey, you know what? Yeah, so the big open wheel cars aren't on track, but you know what? We got the next generation for you, and they put on a whale of a show too. And guess what? We're going to package them as a pretty cool thing. You know, that'd probably be your NBC Gold streaming option. Uh, road to indie tv option compared to tuning on and catching that live on nbc but just maybe something to consider for those who think uh, maybe we do need to fill some of the times when it feels like we don't have enough indycar uh, week in and week out all right let's see let's go to daniel kincaid he says mp in your recent racer article about drivers dominating a race what ones ended up on the cutting room floor? He says, I seem to remember Mike Conway in a Dale Coin card, Detroit winning by a very significant margin with the original Delar DW12. I'm trying to think here. Uh, my friend Chris Dyson mentioned one that I'd thought about, uh, which was Nigel Mansell winning at Loudoun. Uh, new and I believe it was Loudon or Nazareth. I'm blanking a little bit in uh, 93 by almost two laps. Uh, I think Rick Mears winning the 500 in 84 or so by an obscene an obscene length. A lot of the oval stuff jumped out in particular, Daniel, and I know that I opened in that story with Juan Montoya's 2000 victory, and while it might not have been a huge victory in terms of gap from first to second place, modeling off of what Rossi did at Rota America, it's just more the when everyone else had no reason to put up a fight type thing. And so those are a couple others. Ovals tend to be the ones where you go, oh, man, yeah, <laughs> why did we even bother showing up? Um, so there are a couple more there. And as I mentioned to Chris uh, Dyson, I think I did three of them in total for that piece and ended up word count-wise at I think about 1,200 words, which is kind of the limit for folks wanting to stay to the end. So definitely knew that 
lots of room to do a second one and a third and maybe more. And so if I do, I'll probably honestly just lean on y'all to give me some suggestions of ones that you uh, either appreciated that I might write about or that you heard about and want to know more about. So that definitely jumps out to me as something that uh, that would be pretty easy to do again, knowing that uh, second and third and however many other volumes easy to do. Going to go to Ray Schumann, who says, I was watching Formula One qualifying this past weekend, and the drivers are free to use DRS, the drag reduction system, at will. So that got me thinking about push to pass. What if push to pass was available to use in qualifying, but the time came out of the total allotment for the race? Would there be a strategic advantage to perhaps qualifying a position or two higher at the cost of having less push to pass time during the race i love that thinking ray i really do that that's that's some awesome right there that's that's why i love my little podcast here i get folks who are thinking about stuff that should have fallen into my brain but uh i love the idea ray we know that you know folks doing their runs in practice and otherwise with push to pass uh we know that those things are again normal um, but I do like the idea of a little bit of strategery here because there are a few tracks that we would definitely refer to as track position events. I think when we get to my home race at Laguna Seca, AKA weather tech raceway, Laguna Seca and Monterey, that's a definite track position grand prix. Uh, your qualifying position, knowing that passing is very hard there. The track is so low grip that, yeah, uh, very, it's just hard to go forward there. That would be something where I think it would be brilliant to use the model you've laid out, but I also think it would actually have to be more than just that allotment, meaning, and I'm just round number, let's say there's 100 seconds at Laguna for the race. If someone chose to use five seconds in qualifying, leaving 95 for the race, I actually think maybe it would have to be double, right? You really are going to have to think about what you use in qualifying. And rather than it just being a multi, you know, multiplication factor of one, maybe it's a multiplier of two. So it's not an easy decision where you go, all right, hey, I only took out five of the hundred seconds that I have. No, it's 10. Actually, you took away a 10th of your push to pass. That's maybe something to think about. And that's if they only use five seconds on that lap. What if they used seven or eight again, something where you go, you are, <laughs> you, this is bordering on possibly hurting your race a little bit. Uh, so we really want you to think about this. Uh, mid Ohio can be a little bit like that for sure. I mean, again, I, I think I might be able to name almost every track, uh, road and street course, but yeah, I love the idea though, because you know, look, you, you follow racing long enough IndyCar in this, uh, example, you know, at least for those who have been involved in it, been around, followed it for a long time, often looking for new things to interest you, to excite you, uh, things Again, you go to enough of these events, you cover enough of it, you participate in enough, it becomes a very familiar. I really do like the idea of, hey, all right, what's a new kind of thing you can throw and see who, who's really willing to maybe, you know, cut themselves a little bit in qualifying, hoping that it pays off in the race. So 
Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, make sure that uh, Jay Fry hears about that one. So thanks for sending that in, Ray. Going to grab the last question here on Facebook that comes in from Ian Keyworth. It says, IndyCar 2020, the much-rumored Penske super team of Wilt Power, Joseph Newgarden, Simon Pagano, and Alexander Rossi. Would Rossi take his Napa sponsorship from Andretti Autosport, or would Roger Penske um, try and place one of his existing sponsors, maybe a Pennzoil or something else for a full season, with Rossi? He says, uh, I appreciate all the hypothetical, as it's just rumor, but it'd be good to get some thoughts on this. From what I understand, Ian, Napa is up for renewing their deal. So, like <laughs> my Golden State Warriors had Kevin Durant up, who could renew his deal, and uh, did not. Not a surprise, but um, they're up for renewal. Obviously means there's three options renew and stay with andretti don't renew with andretti possibly sign something brand new with someone else or renew with no one sign nothing new leave the sport we hope it's not the latter interesting though because i believe although i haven't seen you know lots of tv commercials or otherwise attaching alexander rossi to napa they still are pretty darn proud of him uh, just looking from a social media presence napa seems to be rather engaged in their participation with young mr rossi so i do believe ian that if alexander were to go to another team that napa would be interested provided they want to continue in indycar in maintaining their association with him gets into a little bit of a tricky thing here in that it's one thing for a team to, I'm not saying poach a driver. I mean, look, Rossi is a free agent, free will. That man can choose whatever it is that he wants to do. That tends to be somewhat accepted between teams. Hey, you got my guy, but he was, you know, you didn't steal him. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't make me happy, but okay, that happens. It's another thing when you see a sponsor on one of IndyCar's big three teams move to another team with that same driver. That gets a little muddier, a little uglier, Ian. And so, again, if Napa were to do that, that would be their choice. But just saying in terms of neighborly behavior, although this is sport and no one does it to be good neighbors, that might be a, an extra bitter pill to swallow. What I don't know is Napa's sponsorship model with Andretti Autosport. So knowing how heavy business-to-business relationships happen to be with Andretti, the underpinning of everything they do is B2B. I don't know what Napa represents to the team in that regard and what they get back. So what I don't know is, is Napa writing a big check for everything, a small check and leveraging mostly B2B value that then comes back in monies from other partners to Andretti, or is it all B2B? And so since I don't know those things, it's hard to say would whatever Napa has with Andretti then be of value to team Penske and their models. And I'm, I know for a fact, I mean, 
just about every IndyCar team has some sort of central B2B relationship with their a sponsor that is heavily B2B driven. What I don't know is if that model, whatever it is that they have with Andretti, that probably leans in the B2B direction would actually have some sort of uh, value to Penske and or Penske could offer similar, if not greater value to Napa. You might say, well, hey, Napa sells a lot of things. Roger Penske has a trillion auto dealerships and he has his leasing rental leasing company. And, you know, there's probably some very easy ways to think about how a relationship on a B2B level between RP and Napa could be an awesome thing. Overstating the obvious here that I've said many times, my racer brother, Robin Miller has said, I really hope this doesn't happen in Rossi and Napa leaving. Uh, I love the big three that we have right now. And I want to see this play out. Honestly, a lot like my warriors, um, had a couple of really good years with Durant, amazing years with Durant, I should say, and would love to have seen that continued. It's going to have to be some restructuring though on the home front here on my favorite basketball team, my home basketball team. But, uh, I'm, I'm hoping we do not have the IndyCar equivalent of the Brooklyn freaking nets getting KD, um, Team Penske's not the Brooklyn Nets by any stretch, but it, yeah, this would be a bit of a blockbuster if it wasn't just the driver, but also the sponsor that's been with him during his Andretti career. So we'll see what plays out here, Ian. It's fascinating. It really is. This is kind of stuff where if we're just talking bench racing, yeah, we can get a bench race all day, every day uh, with stuff like this because we don't know the answer. We, we want to know the answer. Uh, I never really try and let myself believe that I know the answer, but yeah, it is certainly a lot of fun to try and pick through some of that. And last little note here on the Rossi angle stuff on background heard that he thought he might know, might be able to say, Hey, this is what I'm going to do by the end of June. We're obviously just a couple of days now into July. I don't know if that means now it's imminent. You know, it, it's just here. It's, it's right around the corner and about to happen. Or if this means that uh, we are indeed going to just have a little bit of a delay, it's going to be a little bit longer for him to figure out whatever the step is, wherever he is going to end up going. So not totally sure what it means. I don't take the fact that we don't have an answer as meaning there's something wrong. Uh, just you know, could be a case of, Maybe everything is not as black and white laid out exactly. You know, now I have everything in front of me on the table. I can pick from one and off we go. So we'll see. Uh, We will see. We will see. All right. We're going to shift over to Twitter for your questions for me. And then we are going to wrap up and get rolling with our man, young Mr. Award, then young Mr. Karam and then finally Hunter McElray, and say goodbye to this episode. So I'm going to go with Ryan Terpstra, who says, how can I watch the Super Formula Race series in the U.S.? Well, I don't know, Ryan. (laughs) I would highly suggest taking that question and pasting it into Google, 
because it will probably, I'm hoping, be able to tell you exactly what you need to uh, be able to figure that out if there is an answer. I can't guarantee there happens to be, but uh, yeah, hopefully there's something there for you to find. Ryan also threw in uh, a couple of other questions here about 29, but that's okay. Uh, Look, I love when my listeners are heavily engaged. He says, referring to last week, uh, last week's show, but also the last race where Alexander Rossi pulled into victory lane and his PR rep at Andretti Autosport was shown uh, on the broadcast, putting a small little notepad in front of him and flipping it to show him the names of Napa and also the uh, gas GESS renewable uh, biogas company that uh, was his primary sponsor for the Texas race. And so he says, the mystery flashcard review for Rossi and Victory Lane. Uh, can't say or won't say or don't know the real answer. He says, that was the most vanilla question to get what amounted to no comment that I've ever seen. And uh, hashtag super curious now. So that's in reference to someone asked, hey, Alexander, we saw that. Your your PR person, you know, flashing the, the names of uh, two primary sponsors. Why? What was that about? And Alexander just politely said, you know, I don't really want to answer that. So not a problem. I don't know the answer, Ryan. I didn't follow up with him afterwards. All right, tell me the deal. I can just share something that might be an answer because I know it exists. I've seen it and have had it told to me by drivers in their specific instance. Not saying it's Alexander's though. Allegedly. Uh, Some drivers have personal services deals with sponsors so if we're talking about napa that's obviously the team's sponsor but in some cases again those sponsors will also uh, sign a deal with the drivers to do more different extra and in some instances uh, those drivers get paid per mention so every time they mention the name of a sponsor on tv they get an extra amount of money and whatever that amount is who knows So it wouldn't be totally out of the norm to ask if that was it. I wish I had remembered that during the conversation last week, (laughs) but I didn't. Uh, But yeah, so not saying that's it. Just wouldn't surprise me uh, because, hey, if a driver can do those things and add to the income that they have from a team or whatever else, that's just smart business, man. That's just smart money. Um, it's like every time I mention Bell Racing Helmets USA, I get 20 Bell Racing Helmet stickers. Um, no, I wish I got like helmets and all that kind of stuff, but, uh, I just get really good friends who look after us in the podcast. Uh, let's see, let's go to another one from Ryan. He says for MP, um, referring to my wife, if the Chevrell bump keeps putting cars in victory lane, will teams be banned from using the decals? as they may be deemed an unfair performance advantage. So at Road America, the Andretti Autosport team, and a num- couple of others, again, I didn't even know about it till after the race, but uh, put the uh, the Chabrell Keep Fighting stickers that my friend Andy Blackmore made, uh, put those on their cars, and Alexander drove his car into victory lane with my wife's stickers on it, which is just amazing. And then this past weekend at the uh, Salem Six Hours of the Glen IMSA race, uh, our friend, also an IndyCar entrant, Michael Shank, 
put some on both of his Acura NSX GT3s running in the GT Daytona class, and they ended up winning the race. And uh, he actually was just amazing and tweeted out saying that uh, we're racing for Chabrel, uh, and they went out and won. So I wish I could say, Ryan, that there's a uh, uh, Chabrel sticker bump. I can also say that, you know, the Corvettes uh, were the first ones to have them on at uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And, uh, yeah, one got involved in a crash. The other one had some other issues. This past weekend, again, they were on. Uh, one, there was a crash on the opening lap. The other one didn't have as good of a time as it wanted. So I think it depends on who you talk to, my man. There are some teams probably saying, oh, hell yeah, yeah absolutely. Put them on. And there are others saying, you know, uh, it, it's not her fault. It's her husband's fault. But peel those suckers off right now. Um, it's definitely down to that guy. All right. Well, it is just about time to bring in our guests and get going with the rest of the episode. Thank you again to everyone who sent in a lot of really awesome questions. And thanks to our guests for making some time. And thanks to everyone here for your ongoing well wishes and love that I feel and receive, obviously, because we have a, uh, a weekly interaction with one another. But my wife in particular, who honestly doesn't know any of you for the most part, but... Um, yeah, she just lights up knowing how much the constant, constant dosage of love and, uh, and care, it really helps uh, whether you are a person of faith saying actual prayers, or if you are someone just simply saying thoughts and prayers, uh, just all those thoughts and all those genuine prayers, they have a real and true and genuine effect. So thank you. And let's get rocking and rolling with our man, the happiest little tail wagon puppy in the world, Patricio O'Ward. Pato Ward, do you even know what time zone you're in? Is your body even aware whether it should be awake or asleep or in a plane? I, I It sounds like it might be fun to be you, but I'm not sure right now. <laughs> um. I think it could be a lot worse than what it's feeling. Um, I haven't been home like more than 15 hours the past two and a half weeks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's been quite a bit of traveling and I've kind of been on every side of the world. was in the United States and I went to Europe, then I went to Mexico and now I'm in Japan. <laughs> so we're recording this it's seven ten a.m california on the fourth of july we were going to try and record this on tuesday and then again yesterday and again all due to this whirlwind tour of yours getting the last minute call to head to austria compete in an fia formula two race supporting the f1 event mm-hmm. and then back home and then turning right around immediately heading to japan in this new Japanese super formula opportunity that has been brought your way. So we have a lot of, a lot of folks who are happy for you in, you know, IndyCar fans that are stoked for you, but also possibly a little bit sad that they might not be seeing you uh, for a little while. So why don't we start rocking and rolling with the questions we've got 
and then maybe you can go to bed okay. afterwards. So let's start off with Juan Bello. He says, Pato, with this new gig, do you think the sun has set on your IndyCar career and is the focus now solely on Formula One for 2020? He says, good luck. Bummer to see you go, but happy for you. Uh, good question. Um, I Obviously, as of right now, the focus is uh, Super Formula the rest of the year. Why? Um, I honestly didn't have another choice. Um, it was either don't race because, well, I didn't have any funding to continue IndyCar or take what I can get and um, and just, you know, um, and and do the best I can in, in, in whatever, you know, Red Bull uh, wants to send me to. And in this case, it's Super Formula and it's for preparation for a possible future Formula One seat. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's an opportunity too big not to take. Um, and, and yeah, that's why, that's why I, I signed the whole Red Bull deal for a reason. Uh, it's because I don't have any secure backing and wasn't sure what my future was going to be like. So I said, you know what, someone as big as Red Bull is, um, you know, um, reaching out and trying to help. So might as well take the opportunity because i know for sure if i if i didn't take it i'd be kicking myself um you know years if when years you know start to go by and say huh what would have happened if i did take it so i say you know what this is what i'm doing and full-fledged forward how much did you know about the super formula category before this opportunity came up and if it wasn't as much as you wanted, I'm guessing you've done a fair amount of research here in a very short amount of time. Yeah, so I didn't know what it was um, and what it, it is. Basically, to my understanding, is it is the the category right before you jump into a Formula One car. Why? It's quicker than a Formula Two. The tires are better. There's more downforce, and the racing is better. So, um, it's a category where you can um really work and get seat time um and 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 i knew about it and and i knew of it as in being a super competitive category with a very very fast car yeah monster cars and that's the thing i mean it's flies under the radar a little bit because it's a domestic championship that doesn't get you know big international publicity but the cars traditionally including you know, it's also a, a spec Delara chassis like we have an Indy car in an Indy Lights. But traditionally, Super Formula has just been monsters, man. The Tire Wars, for example, um, hearing from drivers who've gone over and done it, whether they've moved on to F1 or not, just talking about the insane amount of grip and lots of speed, lots of everything. So I think you're going to be a happy boy. Let's go to uh, Travis Bender. He says, wanted to say congrats on the Super Formula ride. And two questions. What is the one thing you learned during your Formula 2 weekend? And what is the one thing you're looking forward to the most in Japan? Uh, so what I learned the most in Formula 2 is that um, the tires are something that people cannot stress enough how different they are to anything else in the world. Um, in what way? 
Are they better or worse? Honestly, they are terrible. The amount of degradation. <laughs> yeah, no, that lines up with everything we've heard, so you're not saying anything I mean, new. I mean, it is like there. Someone told me this, and it, and it has stuck with me, and they told me it's like a game of chess. It's not exactly how fast you can go. Maybe for a quality lap, yeah, it's like, you know, try to go as fast as you can, but you have one lap. Um, and in the race, it's like the guy that's going to do the best is the one that knows how to use their tools inside the car to take care of the tire and the temperatures of the tires to keep everything balanced. It doesn't really come down to outright speed or blah, blah, blah. It all comes down to who knows how to use the tire perfectly. And I mean, for me, the first race was like Tokyo drift. And then the second race, in my opinion, it was a lot better. Uh, started last past eight cars uh, but then the safety car came out in the end of the race, and then some people behind us put uh, new tires. I think it was two or three cars and got overtaken. And then the 14th, obviously, is not where we want to be. But I want to like I want to see someone do exactly what I did, which is walk into something that you have no clue about, stone cold about the circuit, the tire, and the car, and try to race it well because from from what i've seen no one has ever gone like stone cold maybe stone cold in the formula 2 car but they've driven a gp3 or an f3 (laughs) but for someone that literally like i don't think cold gets even close to what i did and that's what made it extremely extremely difficult we have a little bit of something similar here. This comes in from uh, Deruslar on Twitter. It says, after experiencing the Pirelli tires, how different do you think the racing in IndyCar would be if they ran tires with similar characteristics? Would drivers be able to run as hard and as close if they had to manage the super drop-off and performance that the Pirellis have? Um, honestly, in my opinion it really eliminates the purpose of a racing driver having tires um, that degradate so fast. I mean, the instinct and the purpose of a fast racing driver is full send, full send, full set, and just try to go faster every lap. It's not managed tires. It's not, oh, I have to take care of this, take care of that, because then, no, it's full blast um and usually when everybody's going full blast the one that the guys that get to race each other are the ones that are you know closest in in speed but whenever all the tire conservation comes into play then it comes into a game of who knows how to do it best um so i think the way that the indycar tires are on now um, they shouldn't really change it because I think the racing is fantastic. Colin Taylor asked something. We've covered a little bit of it. He's asking about the main differences between the Formula 2 car and the Indy car. Uh, we've obviously covered the tire aspect. Maybe you could share some other, whether it's uh, 
engine performance, uh, you know, balance, downforce, and whatnot. And he's also curious about uh, what I think might be your first time racing with a halo. So the halo honestly couldn't couldn't really notice it. Um, it's it, it kind of is the same as like having this new piece on the IndyCar. It's you basically see the exact same thing. Um, just a little obstruction in the middle, but you can't even notice it. Um, cause I guess cause of the way your eyes work together. Um, and the big difference is, um, the formula two car, it is insanely clunky after being in the Indy car, the Indy car, I mean, the turbo and the power delivery is so smooth. The vibrations in the car are so smooth. Um, the gearbox is, you know, very, very, very quick and not clunky. Um, and that was the biggest, I mean, that was a huge difference when I went to the Formula 2 car. I said, wow, it's like being back into like an Indy Lights car with a gearbox that just takes a long time. You have to space everything out going up, like going up shifts, um, in my opinion, the gearbox on the Formula 2 car is worse than the lights car. I mean, it's so violent. It just, it like, it literally jerks you forward. Um, and You really loved the like Formula 2 experience, didn't you there, Award? <laughs> uh, they, I, I think they just, they could have done a better job on that. Maybe because I'm coming from a car that, um, you know, that has more technology than the formula two car. Maybe that's why I'm, um, you know, that's why I'm kind of like throwing a lot of things to the formula two car, but, um, that's something that really stands out under the brakes. They, the braking capabilities are pretty similar. Um, but what was so different and what made it really hard for me to understand what the car wanted or what the car was trying to tell me, um, it's the F2 car is kind of numb. So mm. y- usually like in the Indy car, they both don't have power steering in a fast corner. The steering gets very heavy, but in a slow corner, it gets fairly light in this car. The differences were almost nothing. I mean, it was, you know, hard, like, like it's supposed to be in a fast corner, but in a slow corner, I found it just very, very hard and usually like your second instinct whenever you feel the wheel is heavy you're like oh there's a bunch of grip but then you get to the slow corner and you think the formula 2 car has it and you wheel it and you just go straight (laughs) so it was it was a lot of differences to try and adjust to and like 10 flyers because of the way the Pirelli works. You have to go out, you prepare, prepare, uh, flyer, cool down, flyer, cool down, box. So there isn't, oh, and then the set is done. So there isn't really much chance um, to get consistent laps and just continue working. That's what I think made it so hard. Um, But I feel like if I jump into it again in the next weekend, I'm going to be a lot better than what I was this past weekend. Wow. Well, let's move on to, let's go to Joey of the Priuses, who asks, how helpful was it last weekend to have former Ed Carpenter Racing 
in recent Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Indy 500 driver Jordan King is your teammate, the only other driver on the F2 grid with experience driving the modern IndyCar. It was fantastic. It was great. Uh, it was great to have someone like Jordan that's driven both to give me a few pointers of, of what the F2 car is like. And we seem to agree on a lot of points. Um, and this new Formula 2 car is, is quite different to the older GP2 car. Um, so, so obviously Jordan has driven both, so he can, so he can compare them a lot better. Um, but it was very nice to have someone um, kind of just to tell me uh, what to expect, you know. Let's go to Corey Matthews Pato, who asks or says, you know, uh, happy for you and everything that you've been able to have achieved this year. Corey's also curious, though, if you can discuss where you are at mentally. We've got a few more questions coming that kind of might feed the question that Corey is posing, knowing that this year in particular, coming off of a really amazing 2018 run to win the Indy Lights Championship, you this is going to be your, what, third series you've competed in once you do your first Super Formula race, and we are barely halfway through the year. Yeah, no, I, I, it's been an emotional roller coaster. Um, but I think w- the biggest one that affected me was in the beginning of the year. That that one was the hardest to get through. And um, after getting through that, um, I I learned I learned lessons, and I said, you know what, things that are meant to happen are going to happen. Obviously you try to do everything in your power to fix things. And I will always push for, for what I think is best, but sometimes you can't force things and you just have to let things fall into place. Um, and that mindset and kind of like having that on the back of my head has really calmed me down when something just bad comes up or whenever just, you know, situations with backing you know situations of what's going to happen maybe it's going to be over blah 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 i just think back and i'm like you know what whatever happened is going to happen if i'm destined to be a racing driver which is i which which i hope is 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 what uh i'm destined to be um then you know things will work out um and it's i mean it's not easy at all it's very hard and especially, I mean, I still feel like a kid. So it's, you are it's, a kid, damn it! I hope you wouldn't yeah, feel it, like it, what? I still feel like a kid, but and I know I'm still a kid, but I'm I'm not a 15 year old kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm I've matured a lot through through what I've gone through, especially this past few months. I feel like I've been through like five years, and it's only been six months. Um, and it's just it's very difficult. But you, you can't drown and you can't uh, just overwhelm yourself in thinking, oh, what's going to happen? You just kind of have to cool it off and say, you know what? I'm going to control and I'm going to be able to do or I'm going to do the best in the things that I can control and then just let everything else fall into place. A little bit of a fun follow-up question from Tim Stoll. He says, hey, Pato, everyone thought you were nuts for turning down Michael Andretti's offer earlier this year. Now you have so much more. How did you know? How did I know? Well, I didn't know. <laughs> um, but and and you don't I'm, need to get into all the, 
you know, this is something where I don't know if it needs to be rehashed at this point because you have found something yeah. fairly positive. But I do love the I do love Tim's question though because with the the benefit of hindsight, it looks as if you've had this magical thing in your back pocket and just rode the wave out, and here you are, and everything's worked out the way you'd hoped. And Formula One is is hopefully a possibility. I can tell folks, having spoken with our young guest many times when the the shit was hitting the fan. Uh, yeah, it wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, nope. it wasn't there. <laughs> let's see. Let's go to uh, let's go to Tom Anderson again. This is piggybacking on a few others, but uh, it's just clear that you have made a really strong impact with folks in a very short amount of time. Tom Anderson says, "Pato, are you working to put together a career situation?" that will enable you to run both sides of the pond in IndyCar and the Super Formula Series? Or do you think the opportunities overseas will become too strong to keep you continually competing in North America? Um, that's a good question. I, I'm actually trying to race the, the most things that I can. I know I'm not in the contestants in, on any championship, but... Um, I'm just trying to get as much seat time as I can. Um, but obviously my priority right now is Japan and to do well in Japan. Cause I have, I mean, I'm going to be in a top team, you know, um, good car, uh, good people. And, um, obviously it's not to take away of anything that I had, but, um, you know, to be fairly honest, I wasn't in an Andretti car, an Indy car. I wasn't in a Penske either. So it just made everything so much harder um, to to try and compete with them, which is just, you know, honest. And, and I think you, Marshall, from a lot of people understand how, how much um, knowledge does, um, you know, to 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 the pace you know yeah i mean you're you're driving for you're driving for carlin racing which is competing in its second ever indycar season i mean they have one year and uh what nine ten races of indycar experience total they want to be an andretti or a penske or a ganassi i'm absolutely confident trevor carlin will get his team to that point but that's, that's not going to happen in year two. So at least for me, I'm not hearing you say anything negative or critical about Carlin. It's just a case of you've joined a young team that has aspirations of being a title contender. That's just not going to happen in year two, though. Exactly. No, exactly. And it's it's like trying to beat knowledge that or like others that have maybe 10 times as much knowledge. I mean, you, you can't just buy it. You know, you, you just have to go through it to learn and learn and learn. Um, so I've been lucky with the opportunity with super formula that I've, I've, I've come in into a, a team that has a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge and, um, and there's very good people behind it. So, so the, the, the priority is to do well there. Um, and I'd love to, to then, Maybe do uh, a couple more IndyCar races if the funding is there um, with with Carlin again. Uh, great bunch of guys, and I really enjoyed working with them this year. And 
and I feel like we haven't gotten the result that we deserve. Um, you know, it's it, some of the results haven't been there, and it's not because hard work is missing. Um, I think we've worked as hard or harder than anybody else, but just circumstances that we couldn't control sometimes just, you know, sent our, our race uh, backwards. But I, I'd love to give them a result before the, the year ends um, and then just do fantastic in Super Formula and then maybe a, a couple Formula 2 races. Not really sure what can come up. Right now, the only thing confirmed is uh, Japan. Going to sign you up for a couple of 24 hours of lemons races. See how you do in $500 <laughs> junkers. Um, I'm going to take Chris Ward's question here and shape it a little bit because some of it's been asked uh, previously. He asked what excites you most about your opportunity in Japan. Let me let me shift that, though, Pato, to knowing, for example, you came into uh, Austria last weekend. No sim time, no anything. Um, what do you know is planned uh, to try and get you prepared for uh, to finish out the Super Formula season in terms of learning a whole bunch of new tracks. I know you probably couldn't tell me the rest of the tracks are going to be on, uh, nor can I. There's a lot for you to learn, and I know you don't, nor would Red Bull want you to go in completely cold yet again. What do you guys have planned to try and help get you up to speed maybe before you climb into the car? Yeah, so I'm I'm jumping into the sim um before well trying to jump into the sim before every single uh race weekend in the super formula uh, at least just to to know where the track goes obviously a sim is not the same as as in real life but you get an idea of what the track is like and uh some of the up and downhill things that you can't see on an onboard video um and it just makes everything just a bit easier whenever you roll out on track because it's going to be a new car as well so it's going to take some time to learn the car chris also wonders if you can talk about it if whatever contractually you might have going on if you think there might be opportunities for you to return and do the indy 500 in the uh, in the coming years uh so right now i have nothing um and obviously, if, if, if I'm in a Formula One seat, it's not going to be possible to do the 500. Um, but the, if the question is, would I enjoy to go back? I'd love to go back and actually race in it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, Damien Vanderheiden asks, Pato, which do you want to race more and win more, Monaco or the Indy 500? Um... And get, get be prepared for getting asked that every day going forward, by the way. That's a good question. Um, Indy 500 is so mythical and so legendary. And then Monaco is just, it is the Grand Prix to win in a Formula One car. So um, uh, it's such a good question. Um, the answer is yes. Yes, both. <laughs> uh, let's see. Pablo Vasquez, as we get down to the last couple of questions, Pablo Vasquez asks, how many points do you need to qualify for a Formula One super license? 40 points. I wish I knew the answer to how you acquired those 40 points. That seems like 
maybe even tougher than driving a Formula 2 car on Pirelli's. Yep. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra, who says, Pato, will you return to the podcast after your first Formula 1 win? And he says, it isn't if, it's when. You're probably going to charge me, huh? You're going to big time me. Of course. Me. I'm going to have like 17 well, managers to talk course, to. Of course. Jesus, I... I'm going to have to get your name tattooed nah. on my ass or something like that. I know where this is going, Award. Come on. Uh, <laughs> let's see. No, whenever whenever Mr. Marshall Pruitt calls and texts and, hey, where are you? You want to be on the podcast? First answer is going to be yes. The first answer is going to be. As long as I'm not on a plane. Right. <laughs> it's going to be, who dis? New phone. That's what I'm going to get back. All right, let's uh, let's go to the last question here from Fernando, who asks, what are the activities that you've been doing off-camera, behind the scenes, uh, and what do you expect to be doing behind the scenes as part of the Red Bull Junior program? Curious if it's special training, is it promotional events? What uh, We know about the racing side of what's coming for you. How busy do you expect to be representing the brand behind the scenes? And is that even a demand they've really placed on you yet? Uh, so it hasn't been that crazy yet um, because it's it's kind of just starting to um, I'm kind of just starting to to be um, kind of within the team a lot more. Um, so starting with the super formula stuff and you know starting to go to the simulators a lot. Um, I'm sure I'm going to, you know, sneak in some training sessions with, with, the uh, uh, physios that they have, um, uh, just be ready, be ready f- and be as ready as I can for, for what's coming. Um, and, and then I'm sure, I mean, I'd love to do like a road show in Mexico or something that would be really cool. You know, I haven't seen any Instagram photos of you like brushing your teeth with red bull i mean i'm just trying to share with you you can step up your game a little bit here you know i mean come on man i haven't seen you know like your dog walking around with a red bull hat i mean again i'm just saying you know creativity i want to see a little more of it what's the craziest thing you can do to represent red bull of course you're going to get a call from dr marco saying stop it stop it now then you can blame me I probably all, I I like that idea of my dog wearing a hat. But then you don't want to become the Formula One guy who's dressing his dog in costumes, right? I mean, that's a whole other thing. But who knows? Maybe that's uh, why we should just shut up. I know you've got no sleep. I've got no sleep. It's only going downhill from here. But that's the norm on our little podcast. Brother, <laughs> happy for you. I hate the fact we're not going to see you for, I don't know, a while. Uh, but I am really happy for you nonetheless that even if it does not mean IndyCar is your immediate future, the guy who came over here and made folks know that he was here and not only won that championship last year, but did some really great things on the road to Indy, made a really strong impression with a small and new team in IndyCar and one that wants to continue to play in IndyCar if and when he can. I think that's all pretty good stuff, dude, still knowing that your entire career in life is still ahead of you. So looking forward to following you. And I think a lot of folks are going to be for the first time figuring out where to get live streams and other things to keep tabs on you in super formula. 
Thanks, my man. As always, we'll keep in touch. Thank you, everybody, for the support. It's meant a lot. Uh, and we'll see what we got for the rest of the year. Let's go get some wins. Hey, I like the idea of that. All right, brother. Get some sleep, and we'll speak soon. Sage Karam, it always makes me really happy when I see your name on an IndyCar entry list. Hell, man, I wouldn't lie. It could be IMSA. Could be rallycross. It could be a skateboard. I'm just happy when you're working and getting to do good things in a race car. Let's start off with just talking about this effort that's been going on behind the scenes by you. I assume your awesome father trying to find partners, find sponsors that can get you back in the game outside of the Indy 500. Yeah, I mean it's it's literally been the a whirlwind you know it's um a lot of ups a lot of downs and um you know there's been a lot of times where we've been really really close on landing some you know races after indy uh, um you know i've had some sponsor interest team interest and then kind of you know last minute things it, it just would kind of not work out so you know i'd get my hopes you know i'd get, get them really really far up and then all of a sudden uh you know my hopes would uh be crushed so um you know i was getting I was getting kind of down on myself, honestly, just because I, um, it's hard, it's hard to keep getting knocked down like that and, and keep the faith and everything. But, um, you know, I knew I had to do it. I, I wasn't ready just to, just to pack it in yet. So, um, you know, we stuck with it, you know, and I, I started working with a guy in, here in Nazareth, um, Gerald Groove, who, um, you know, is a close friend of mine and has done a lot of, um, you know, a lot of sponsored deals with, fighters in the MM, in MMA and stuff. And, um, you know, he, he actually has been working a lot of good angles for me. So, um, you know, big hats off to him. And, you know, he's the one who actually introduced me to smart stuff. And, um, you know, they were on my helmet as kind of like a personal deal for, uh, I want to say the last two Indy 500s. And, um, then they, uh, stepped up to, um, you know, come into the Toronto weekend. So I think, you know, they're wanting to get into IndyCar on a bigger scale, which is great. You know, I think anytime IndyCar can get more, more sponsors and, and new ones and, um, you know, it just is better for the sport in general. Um, so, you know, they wanted to get their feet wet in it. And, um, you know, Toronto and the street course, it's definitely a cool vibe race and it's definitely a, a cool one to be a part of. So, um, you know, it's a perfect opportunity for them. You know, they're opening a hub to their their um, company out, out there. So, um, you know, this is one they definitely had on the radar and, you know, I'm just really happy that Carlin gave me the opportunity and, and, um, you know, we, we could, uh, get it all worked out. I love the look of the car. As I think a few folks pointed out, it, it reminds some folks of the old ethanol sponsored Indy cars, but that, that soft baby blue. And I don't know if baby green is a thing, but the blue and green is, is really beautiful thing. So I can't wait to see that. Uh, pictures of the car on track here shortly you mentioned carlin the timing worked out uh, in a very good way i mean this week my uh, my guests are you and pato award so the guy who was in the car and now the guy who's going to be in the car why carlin uh when again in theory you might have been able to go to a hunkos maybe bobby ray hall could have put a third car on track or you know we can name a few other teams uh, maybe an ed carpenter could have what led you to Carlin? Um, I mean, I, in all honesty, you know, I've, um, I, you know, was, uh, looking around and, you know, contact a couple team owners. Um, 
you know, but like you said, it was kind of a timing thing um, with Pato having to go off overseas and, and go racing over there. They had a seat that was open. You know, there were teams that didn't really have um, crews ready to do another car and stuff like that. Um, so it all just kind of worked out perfect. And I wanted to be in a Chevy um, just because every IndyCar race I've been in has been in a Chevy. Sure. So that you know, that made sense to, to me as well. Um, you know, and, and they're a, they're a really respected team. So, um, you know, to be part of an organization like that, um, you know, is definitely a positive and something I, I really, really look forward to. Um, but you know, it's going to be a challenge no matter what team I was going to be with, um, just because of, you know, I haven't been in a, in a car in so long and, 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 on a road course it's been since 2015 so mid ohio um, 2015 brother so yeah i mean work timing wise you're within about two weeks of uh what four or five years you know it, it you're spot on when you say it's been a little while uh, yeah and i i think the last street course i did was detroit of that year too so i mean you know it's it's been a while i i didn't even race you know toronto when i was with ganassi so um i've never drove an indycar around toronto and, um, I, uh, the last time I drove there was in an Indy lights car and that's yeah. when you know, the last section of the track was a bit different. So yeah, going to be a, going to be a challenge, but definitely one I'm looking forward to. Never easy with you, Karam, but I love the fact that you love the fight, man. Uh, yeah. let, let's talk about the car you're stepping into. So I know that Pato in terms of finishing record has not had everything that he would have wanted this year the number 31 Chevy but if we disregard whatever position he's been in at the end of many of the road and street courses we can say for sure I mean obviously he had that eighth at Circuit of the Americas to open with the team but we've seen some very impressive qualifying sessions for Pato uh, practice sessions as well kind of been in or around the top 12 seemingly the majority of the time I'm guessing that gives you at least a pretty good feeling of confidence coming and knowing that this car uh, in its previous operator's hands has been capable of getting up there and mixing it with some of the bigger teams. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at Detroit, I think Pato, you know, qualified inside the top 10. Um, so, I mean, that you know, that's obviously a, a big, uh, you know, confidence boost as far as going into a team knowing that, you know, it, it, it can produce, you know, good results. And, um, you know, I, I'm just going to have to figure it out. Um, but that's that, I mean, that's just the main thing of this whole, this whole deal is, is basically, this is going to be something completely different to me that, you know, I haven't, I haven't sat in an Indy car with road course wings on it in so long. And, um, you know, I mean, just, I, I think the hardest thing for me is going to be figuring out the brakes, um, from when I drove an Indy car in 2015, you know, we had so much more downforce, so it was basically break as late as possible, and um, you know the thing would stick. So you know the car is a, a lot different nowadays. And um, you've also gone from Brembos when you were uh, last in IndyCar on road and street courses to the PFCs as well. So it's an entirely different manufacturer too. Yeah, right. So I mean, there's a lot of different elements that I'm going to have to deal with, and I, you know, I've been obviously following along with with what's going on with, um, all the race weekends and stuff. It looks like, you know, tire deg is, is a bit bigger this year from what I've been used to. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a lot of things that I'm going to have to just learn on the fly. And, you know, unfortunately it's not like you have, um, you know, like two full days of just turning as many laps as you want to, 
figure it out. You got to learn it pretty quick. So, um, you know, but the team, like I said, is super professional. Like, you know, they got Jonathan George driver coaching over there that, you know, I worked with and skip barber. So, um, you know, just stuff like that really, really helps out and goes a long way. Um, you know, I got Max Chilton as a teammate who has plenty of experience for me to, you know, pick his mind. Um, and, um, you know, I think I'm going to be able to get, get on the sim down in Charlotte, um, Great. you know, the day before I head out to Toronto. So, you know, hopefully that helps. It definitely helped me. I did that when I was at Ganassi. Um, you know, I never been to Detroit, never drove an Indy car around Detroit, any car around Detroit, went down there on the sim and we were P2 in the first session. So, um, I'm a big believer in sims and that's just, you know, that was just another example of why I think sims are such a, a, a you know, a beneficial thing for drivers and getting prepared. You know, mention one other change since you were last in IndyCar again, road and street course. I know obviously you've, you've interacted with him at the Indy 500, but you mentioned not being able to get a ton of time on track at Toronto. Well, IndyCar race director, Kyle Novak, little secret. He doesn't mind if you keep going after they wave the checkered flag on the session. So just do all the laps you want, man. No issues yeah, at all. Yeah. He, he, the, the, I, might, I might just have to take advantage of that. <laughs> just don't tell him, uh, him, and then when the police arrest you, just don't tell him I'm the one who said that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about career-wise, Sage. So at least for me, as one of the monkeys writing and reporting about IndyCar, the great story here isn't just that you are back in IndyCar going to Toronto with Carlin. It's what we opened with. Hey, he hasn't given up. He, despite many opportunities to say, F you, I'm done. Uh, this is something you have continued to fight for. Uh, I don't know if I'm right and accurate in saying this, but in theory, you might have been able to take this sponsorship and say, all right, we're going to go do something in IMSA where you competed with the uh, the Lexus team formerly or something else the f- tell just tell us about this thing inside you that says love the fact that I know I'm going to be at Indy during the month of May but you know what that's not enough for me tell us about this thing that's been pushing you to keep going and try and find something to keep this IndyCar dream alive yeah well I mean you know I, I've had opportunities to go race you know sports cars and stuff in on more of a full-time efforts and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I just, I've just never been ready to just stop chasing what my dream has been. And that's been to be in an IndyCar seat, you know, year in, year out and, and make a living doing that. And, and, um, you know, try and make my name as an IndyCar driver. And that's, you know, I think you see a lot of the times, you know, you see a lot of drivers, if, um, you know, they'll come here, maybe after an opportunity over in Europe or something has failed or they'll leave, they'll leave here, um, you know, to go chase something else. And, um, you know, but that's, that's kind of, I mean, you know, that, that everybody has different dreams. Everybody has different aspirations of what they want their career to look like. And mine, just my whole life growing up, you know, in Nazareth around the Andretti's has always just been IndyCar goal oriented. And, um, you know, that, that's just my goal. That's where I want to be. There's no other race series in the world that I want to be racing more than I want to be racing in an, in an Indy car. So, um, I just, you know, never ready to quit it. And, um, you know, I'm not going to give it up until I am told that I need to really give it up and that it's, you know, it's, it's too late now. And, um, you know, that, that's why my, my dad is actually funny. Cause he's always like, you know, why, why don't you, um, 
you know, go look around for like a part-time job or something just to like keep you busy during the day. And I always respond with the same answer. And I was like, because, you know, I'm the type of guy where if I go do, I go find another job or something like that, like I'm going to go into it with a hundred percent commitment and figuring it out and learning and stuff like that. And I feel like if I'm giving something else a hundred percent, then I'm taking away from, you know, continuing to find a ride in this IndyCar series and, you know, I'm pretty much quitting a little bit on IndyCar and that's just, I'm not ready to do that. You know, I need to be a hundred percent committed and a hundred percent ready to, you know, keep attacking and keep figuring out ways to, uh, you know, go racing. The world has enough fitness instructors, yoga instructors, or whatever it is that might uh, interest you. So we're going to let those people keep those jobs. You keep working to remain as a professional race car driver. So what, What's a mindset for you, Sage, going into Toronto? I mean, I can pretty much write the opening script for the first practice session. If you aren't last, it will be a huge surprise. Nothing to do with your talent, just you've got a heck of a lot to learn and not a ton of time. But knowing that it would be strange for anyone coming in many years removed to be anything other than bottom of the timesheets, then having to work your way up. Where do you put your expectations so you aren't setting yourself up mentally at least to fail? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's actually like a benefit for me is is I think that's what everybody is is kind of expecting is that I'm going to go in there and, and be, you know, well off the pace and, um, you know, basically a write-off all weekend. And, you know, I'm going to be the guy that's going to be the first one to lap down and stuff like that, whatever. But, um you know, that, that doesn't really add pressure that kind of just takes it away. And anything else you do on, you know, better than that is, is a, is a plus, but you know, that's just not the type, I I guess that's just not the type of competitor or driver that I've always been. You know, I've always wanted to go in and do the best job possible. Um, no matter what race car I'm in or, or any race I'm in. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I can tell you, like, like, do I expect to be at the bottom, you know, towards the bottom of the, the charts, the first session, like, you know, probably, but am I, um, even though I, I kind of think that's how it's, it, it, it will be the first session, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be happy with that, obviously. So, um, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that doesn't happen. And, um, you know, but at the same token, you know, I've waited so long for an opportunity to race another IndyCar race on a road course after the 500 that, um, you know, I want to make the absolute best of this opportunity. And I've been doing everything in my power to make sure that I've been ready for this call. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to try and go in there and, you know, open up some eyes, you know, cause this is an opportunity that I don't get, I don't get much of. And, um, you know, it could turn into something bigger, um, down the road if you, you know, perform at a high level. So, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go in there with, with, um, you know, the intentions of, you know, that I'm going to do well, and that's all I can really do it. And, you know, I'm going to let everything else kind of put, you know, I, the only thing I can control is, is myself and, and how I do and the rest will kind of just, uh, will play out with how, how it does. So, you know, I, I'm probably going to need a little bit of luck. I'm going to need to learn really, really quickly. And, um, you know, but I'm confident with the resources around me and, and, um, you know, the experience that now that I have knowing, you know, with just racing in general, um, you know, I, I, I feel confident going in that, um, 
you know, I'm not going to be a laughing stock by any means. <laughs> no, for sure. So this is the dumb question that folks like me tend to ask. Realizing that you've yet to climb into the car and compete with your new sponsor, primary sponsor, have you at least been able to speak with them? Maybe some others that you're talking to privately in the background about, hey, you know, if this Toronto thing works out, we get some good publicity for you. The doors open at all to discuss maybe doing more or is it too early to speculate um, on such things? No, I mean, I think absolutely that the doors do open. I think um, especially with the, you know, the position that, you know, the Carlin, you know, is in right now with, um, you know, a, a seat open on ovals, um, you know, Max with Max, you know, stepping away from ovals you know, there's going to be a seat there, you know, they're going to need those cars in leader circle money. Um, you know, so these cars, you know, they're planning on running and, um, the only thing you can really do to keep your name in the hat is, is, you know, be mature, be professional, you know, have the team, you know, like working with you and not only, you know, all that stuff going, you know, while you're in the car and giving your feedback back and, and, um, you know, just interacting with all the mechanics and, and the personnel of the team, but also just how you actually drive the car. And if you can drive it well and you can perform well, that all makes, you know, those decisions a, a lot easier. And, um, you know, I think the one thing I do have going for me is that, you know, the weekend after this race is Iowa and I run pretty strong at Iowa in the past. So, um, you know, that that is something I do have going for me. Um, but I think, you know, there's obviously nothing set there by any means um you know it's just kind of been brought up but it, it nothing has been moved on by any means i think it all just kind of is uh gonna be you know going off of you know how the whole toronto weekend goes so there is extra incentive you know to to go in and do a do a great job obviously so um like i said you know i've been doing everything in my power to make sure that we just go in there and produce the result that you know i want to produce and and that i think the team deserves so um yeah we'll see how it goes it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be hard but it's it's a challenge that you know i've been faced with in my career for many many years of doing one-off races and stuff so i'm, I'm no stranger to having to kind of go in and try and you know do well right off the bat <laughs> Karim versus carpenter the rematch coming to iowa speedway ah oh, i would love to see that I would love to see that, my man. Well, let's close with the question we got sent in by Brett Ross, who says, Hey, Sage, how are you liking Rallycross? And that's in reference to your dear, dear friends and uh, now longtime Indy 500 partners at Dreyer and Reinbold Racing. Yeah, I mean, so obviously, you know, Dreyer has been, oh man, they've been such a, a help of my career and, and just such a, such an awesome team where I, I have a family there and, you know, Dennis is a great team owner and, and, you know, probably the best team owner I've ever drove for. So, um, you know, I, I love those guys and girls that work there. Um, you know, and, um, you know, they, they want to come in IndyCar on a, on a bigger scale as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, things didn't work out this year, but you know, who knows with what their plans are for next year. Um, but yeah, they've been a great help for me in my career and I love every time I strap into a DRR car. Um, but I mean, as far as the rally stuff, I thought it was really, really cool that, you know, Dennis kind of stepped up and put me in the car, um, just to keep me busy. You know, he, he knows that it's hard to jump into a, an Indy car, you know, 
once a year and not really doing anything in between. So I think for us, it was more or less just to, to drive something, stay sharp. And, um, you know, I did a lot of tests with the team. Um, not a lot, but I've done two days of testing before the first race and more or less it was the original test was just to come in and test all four cars and make sure, you know, they were, they were very, you know, similar, close and, um, you know, for all their drivers. And then we actually showed really well at that test. And, and then, um, you know, he kind of the talks came up of maybe we can go do a race and, you know, did another test. And then it was like, all right, we got to go do a race. So we did the first two races. I finished second in both my races. Um, I took to it, you know, I felt like really, really well, you know, it, it was a really cool experience. I never drove on dirt before, um, you know, in a race car on purpose by any means. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that was something new, something to learn. And I was actually really surprised with, um, with the feeling of dirt at the time, you know, in that car, you know, I don't know if it's how much different it would be, say, you know, say in a midget or a sprint car or something like that. But from what I felt like in that car, it almost felt like driving in the rain. Um, so I didn't really have this this big learning curve where I was kind of looking at it as it was going to be a huge learning curve. And, um, yeah, I, I, I went out right away. First session was attacking. I was P2 first session, basically like P2 almost every session of the weekend. Um, and then, um, you know, we, we, we were really, really quick coming in the races, but I just couldn't get off the line. These guys that have been racing those cars for years now know how to, uh, you know, work those clutches and stuff. You got to drag the clutch out a little bit when you, when you go off the line. And I'm just used to, you know, being in an Indy car, dropping the thing full throttle and the thing just goes, but you know, this thing didn't have enough power with all wheel drive to do that. So I was struggling getting off the line and when they're only, you know, six lap races, it's hard when, you know, to get it all back. So, um, it was, it was a lot of fun though. I mean, it was probably the only car I've ever driven where the harder you push it, the faster it goes. Like there was no overdriving limit of that car. It was just keep pushing it harder and harder and harder. And it was, you know, I mean, I've drove in, you know, in the Indy 500s and stuff and, I mean, six laps in that thing, driving it at 150% compared to when you're driving a Indy 500 at, you know, um, 80% most of the race, you know, just kind of getting it towards the end. And then you go 100% the last 20 laps or so. But um, it, there was, yeah, I would I would say the rally car was so physical. I mean, it was just beating you up with potholes and dirt and, you know, just constantly pushing. I mean, it was a very, very physical car to drive, but I loved it. I love the challenge. You know, we're second in points in that, but, you know, missing, you know, round three and four of the ARX series now, um, you know, to go race Toronto. And, you know, Dennis was really, really cool about that, you know, because he wants me to go win the championship in ARX too. Um, but, you know, he knows too that, um, you know, IndyCar is things I need, I, I can never pass up on. So it was cool to have a team owner like that just be like, listen, dude, you got to go do what you got to do and we'll come back for around, you know, uh, five and six in the, in, in the, uh, ARX cars and, and, you know, we'll get on the top step of the podium, those, those races. So it's cool to have a team owner like, like Dennis, you know, that's, that's on your side like that. So go and succeed at Toronto, get more sponsors to sign on so you can become full-time earn millions and millions of dollars as an IndyCar driver, invest in an ARX Rallycross team, we'll have Karam slash Reinbold Motorsports, and then you get to do both. See, I've just laid out the next five years of your career, Sage. Super easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that would that would be lovely. You know, I, I, 
you know, I've actually thought about it, you know, like the last few years of just trying to, because it's been hard with getting full time and everything. And I just wanted to be in racing and be around the paddock and stuff. But I've been like thinking about, you know, what it would take, how I could do it of like just trying to maybe start up like a, like a, like a USF 2000 team or something like that. Like, I think that'd be something really cool and something I'd really enjoy. Um, you know, so we'll see what the future holds, you know, right now, the main focus is just going in, doing my job to the best of my ability. And, um, you know, just hopefully I can leave that weekend and, um, you know, people can, can say, you know, wow, you know, he's, he's come a long way or, you know, maturity wise and, and, um, you know, just didn't really expect, you know, for that to happen after being out of the car for so long, you know, that's, that's the main goal. You know, I know there's, I, I have a really like, strange group of following that follows me. It's like, I got my people that are die hard for me and will have my back to the day I die. And then I got the people that really want nothing to do with me. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's cool though, because it, it you know, it starts a lot of, a lot of talk and a lot of, um, publicity for people that are involved. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, I want the general, you know, perception, you know, to be a bit better, obviously, but just, you know, across the board. I mean, I, I have a lot of great people that, that follow my career and, and are fans of mine. But, you know, you obviously as, a, as an athlete, you want everybody to like you, but you can't have that. So, um, you know, I get it. You know, there's some opinions of me with some people. But, you know, my goal the last few years has been just trying to, you know, change the perception and, and um, you know, be – be somebody that, you know, when the little kid's in the stands and, and, and is there watching or is in the paddock and asking for autographs, you know, I, I just want that kid to just be like, I want to be like him when I grow up. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of like been my goal. And, you know, to do that, I got to be racing more. So I'm doing my best to get more races. <laughs> Says the 24-year-old, that's always going to be a crazy thing, Sage, thinking of you coming up the then Mazda Road to Indy winning the Indy Lights Championship, all that you've done, and you're still only 24, man. So while it feels like you are an old, old timer, still so much ahead of you, so much for you to continue to write in your career. So really happy for you, obviously hoping that Toronto is the start of something really good between you and Colin Racing and IndyCar. And I'm hoping we get a chance here in the very near future to talk again. Thanks for uh, making some time, my man. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. Really appreciate it. Always love talking to you. So, Hunter, happy to have you here. Your first appearance on the week in IndyCar. Gotta love the fact that, A, you have have this pretty interesting lineage that includes California, Steve Mellon, and the Stillen organization, uh, of which I had a dear friend, Lou Shalom, who used to work for uh, Stillen back in the day. We have New Zealand and we have Australia, except for the California part. There's a lot of Scott Dixon kind of uh, meandering here. Tell us, a yeah. bit, tell us a little bit about your really interesting, I guess, upbringing, your international uh, transportation in terms of your upbringing, <laughs> and then we'll get to the motor racing side. Yeah, thank you. Um, firstly, Thanks for letting me come on the show. I've been a listener of this for a pretty long time, so it's pretty cool to be speaking to you. Um, but, yeah, so like you said, I've got a pretty, pretty, um, I guess you could say, fruit salad nationality. Um, I uh, I was born in 
California, like you said. And then, like, I, the reason I was kind of born over there was because my dad at the time was working for, for Stillen, like you said. So, um, I think dad spent about six years over there. And obviously, that's when I was the kind of time period I was born in. And uh, obviously, I can't really remember much because I, I left uh, California when I was, I think, two or three. And then, um, yeah, we flew obviously over to Australia. And then, um, yeah, I grew up in Australia. Uh, and then, yeah, I, uh, the New Zealand kind of part of the, the whole equation is my whole family's from New Zealand and, uh, I've, I've got a New Zealand passport and an American passport. So pure New Zealand and American citizenship, which, uh, makes getting over to, to here pretty, well, a lot easier anyway than it would have been if I didn't. So yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, the whole kind of deal. Well, the family history with high-performance Nissan parts and Lexus parts, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure where that might factor into your future racing opportunities, <laughs> but I would say, you know, it's it's definitely in the family DNA. So oh, for sure. speaking of family DNA, I mean, as I understand, Hunter, you aren't the first person to climb behind the wheel of a race car in your family. Share with no. us, Share with us that part, because... I'll tell you, as someone who's my father was an amateur race car driver, and it shaped everything about my. I mean, brother, I'm 48 years old. Everything <laughs> about going to Sears Point with my dad from the age of three on, or whatever that I remember, it has shaped everything in my world. I can only imagine your story might be similar. Oh, definitely. Um, I think you pretty much nailed it on the head right there in terms of like your family and your. For me, my, my granddad was, my dad's dad was the first proper racer in my family. So I'm actually a third generation um, driver, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, so my granddad was a New Zealand uh, national champion back in, back in the days in the kind of 60s or 50s and 60s and even kind of 70s. Um, and then my dad also raced and he was also, uh, he actually won two New Zealand championships. So he actually moved to America because he thought he was going there to drive. Um, but long story short, a few things didn't go kind of the way, I guess he, you could say he expected it. And he obviously was working with Dylan. So, um, yeah, for me, like a lot of kids, I think a lot of people I know, they kind of remember like a certain point in time, they decided to be a driver where sure. for me, you know, it's always just been something I've wanted to do. Like I, I can't remember a time where I decided it was always just, it was what I was going to do. You know what I mean? Like I grew up, you know, at the racetrack all the time with, you know, just going to the track with my dad or, you know, I'm from a racing family, family, obviously. And my dad uh, has a business in racing. So he's worked in racing pretty much his whole life as well. And, uh, I'd pretty much be spending as much time as I could just being at the track as when I was a young kid and just, you know, I just loved it. Uh, I lived and breathed it. So, and still do. So, for me, it was just, like I said, it wasn't really a time that I decided I wanted to race. It was just I was born always wanting to race. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to, to have that big family uh, connection with the sport. So looking at how your name came on the U.S. radar, um, get my daily down-under email news blast from speedcafe.au.com from uh, my friend my friend crusher a friend uh that's a loose term but um looking at how last year and coming into the uh at least our off season 
you know, how you were definitely hoping to come here. There's a shootout and such that helped get you into USF 2000 on a scholarship. Why don't you share with folks the level of racing that you'd worked up to down under and this opportunity that has led to a fully funded, uh, soul red colored, um, Pabst Motorsports entry with the uh, the Mazda name on it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the whole kind of story starts with my first ever racing cars. I, I started in a 1991 Van Diemen Um Just started off, you know, I say for fun because it was just for fun. But, you know, I always, like I said, wanted to be a professional race car driver, but you have to start somewhere, obviously. So it was quite a grassroots level. Um, I actually did a race at a track called Morgan Park in in, a, in Queensland, Australia. Um, and I wasn't really expecting much. I kind of just, my dad and kind of just said, you know, we're going racing next week and we're racing this car. And it was kind of like, cool, well, like, let's go. And uh, I didn't really have much expectation on myself. And long story short, I ended up kind of putting on a pole and winning the race. So that was, I wouldn't say surprising, but I wasn't really expecting it. Um, and then from there, in that same car, I scanned off into, so in the American wintertime is the, obviously Australian and New Zealand summertime and they have kind of a summer series. So I sent, I'll be sent the car over to New Zealand and I did probably about six or seven races, um, and just learned a lot in a short space of time, just about how to drive a car fast and, and just racing in general. Um, so Looking back now, like, at the time, I didn't really notice it, but I think that was uh, a really good uh, decision just to do laps and, and develop as a driver. Um, and then from there, I moved into the Australian National Formula 4 Championship. So the the car I was in was obviously yeah, a 1991 uh, Van Diemen with a Kent motor. So, uh, a beautiful thing. I've worked. Yeah. I've worked oh, on the yeah. 91 Van Diemen's and, and I'll just, I should have mentioned at the outset while formula Ford was once the biggest thing, just about the biggest thing here in North America. I mean, in the UK and many other places, but just talking here, formula Ford was once the biggest, uh, first real stepping stone. I would say even more than karting for quite some time. While that's no longer the case, it's still there. It's now just referred to as Formula F. Formula Ford, down under, has remained a really powerful and serious, serious aspect of uh, open-wheel driver development. Oh, for sure. Um, definitely. I probably couldn't say that any better myself. Um, in Australia, it's pretty much the biggest of the national championship, I should say, is the, the national four championships, without a doubt, like the most competitive and and popular junior open wheel category in the country. Um, there is Formula 4 and things like that, but there's usually not more than 10 cars, and there are usually guys trying to go karts, whereas in Formula 4, you're looking at 30-plus cars with a lot of good drivers and guys with a lot of experience. And, um, you know, we have there's a, in that car that they're all kind of Miguel's or late model Miguel's or Spectrum's and with Durotech motors in. So around... 15 to 20 more horsepower than a Kent motor. And, you know, they're, they're pretty on a groove tire as well compared to the 1600 over here. So compared to kind of what I started in it at first, it's, it, it's definitely a big step up in terms of power and things like that. And, and definitely in competition. So I spent two years uh, in 
informal forward and uh, in that formal forward. And uh, it, it was an awesome kind of two years of racing. The first year I uh, I was battling for the championship um, and, you know, it was I learned a lot, but I was making a lot of mistakes and kind of just the usual thing of trying too hard and and just making those kind of rookie errors in my first year, which I ended up fourth in that championship, which at the time was disappointing because, like I said, I was fighting for the championship, but it was almost a, a kind of blessing in disguise because it gave me an opportunity to come back again and uh, really refine everything and, and make sure that because, you know, at that point I still was my, my long-term kind of dream was to win that championship. My short-term, I should say, dream was to win that championship and then get a shootout ticket and obviously have the opportunity that I have right now. But I think if I won that year, I probably wouldn't have been ready to maybe win the shootout or, or be competitive in America just in terms of like a mental aspect and not being probably mentally strong enough. Sure. So in 2019, oh, sorry, 2018, I, um, I came back and we had a really, really good year. I won... 13 races um, and you know had a lot of poles, a lot of fast laps and broke a lot of records and won won that championship pretty comfortably, which was really good. And then ended up getting the shootout ticket and then was able to win the 2018 Master Road to Indy Scholarship Shootout, which was uh, pretty amazing um, just to kind of achieve that. You know, obviously you sit down and, and you talk about it and you write out a big plan of what you want to do. But, you know, as you definitely would know, like kind of saying something and, and, tr- and having a plan of doing something and actually achieving it is two very different things. So that was amazing and, and literally a dream come true to, to have this opportunity this year to, to be in the Mazda Soul Red Scholarship car. So I guess that kind of is that whole journey wrapped up in a nutshell. I love it. Let's get to the questions that we have received for you. And you. let's start off with a couple. One from uh, one of our listeners from QR from Brisbane. Nick O'Pop says, Hunter, how has the transition to the USA been for you? And what are some of the big things you've had to adapt to over there? To be honest, it's been pretty, I wouldn't say easy because, nothing's ever kind of as straightforward as you plan it to be, but it's been really good. You know, firstly, uh, Pat's racing Augie and his whole kind of group of people have made me feel extremely welcome. And it's been, uh, really seamless in that aspect of kind of fitting into the team and, and, and all that. So that's been really good. Um, when I first came over actually, and, and came over and you you do the seat fit and everything, it was snowing like, pretty crazy and <laughs> and it was really cold so that I've, I've seen snow and you know i've been skiing what is wrong like, with your son there's white <laughs> stuff falling out of it <laughs> exactly but I, i've never opened my door and just seen snow and just how cold it was so that was pretty shocking at first but other than that it's been pretty seamless <laughs> um and yeah I, I love this country it's uh it's pretty awesome and on track it's obviously so fun and and such amazing experience, but off track, you know, in between races, it's, uh, it's cool to see a lot of the different cultures and things as well. So I'm loving that aspect of it. And yeah, I'm really enjoying it over here. Nick also asks if you have any interest in giving the new Australian F 5,000 chassis a steer. That would be super cool. I've seen some onboard, 
um, of it. And I'm not sure. Have you heard of a track called Phillip Island? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. yeah. Phillip Island is <laughs> an awesome track. And uh, that car around Phillip Island would be uh, pretty awesome. So to, to answer that question would be a massive yes. All right. And Nick, let's see. After Nick, let's go to another one of our listeners from down under. Shay Small says, Hunter, what's your favorite New Zealand or Australian track? That is a good question because I think Australia and New Zealand, definitely compared to America as a whole, the tracks are probably a bit narrower and not as not as long, I think. To, and that's, that's generalizing a lot, but they kind of have their own kind of, what's the word? Not not like flavor, but their own kind of type of track, definitely yeah, compared to over here. Character for sure. Yeah, character, that's the one I was looking for, but... Um, in Australia, I don't know if you've heard about this track, but it was kind of released last year. It's called The Bend. Uh, heard of, yeah, heard about it, um, seen. Yeah, it, it looks amazing. That was, I raced there in Pommel Ford uh, last year, and it was so fun. You know, it's the longest track that we raced on. It was just under two minutes. Um, but, man, that was fun. Like, there's a lot of technical corners, a lot of fast corners, and, it's probably the most uh, technical and, and flo- like flowing track we go to. But a lot of the tracks is kind of a certain style, whether it's a fast track or a slow track, whereas this track, it's got everything to it. So to know on a lap, you've really got to make sure you're firstly working well with your engineer to, to give you a good car, but you've also got to put a pretty good lap together yourself. So I really enjoy driving that track. So I'd probably have to say Town Bend. Shay also asks if you can share any insights about the difference in racing style between what you did uh, at home down under and now here in the U.S. It would probably have to be the racing. Um, in Formula Ford and Formula 1600 and Formula F, I think, they're all kind of the same thing, but just different names over here. But there's a lot of drafting and things like that, so... Um, we did standing starts in Australia and New Zealand. So what I kind of always tried to do starting off pole was get a really good jump off the line and then be really good on cold tears. So no one could kind of be close enough to get a draft off you and they'd all battle behind and you could pull away. Um, over in America, you can, uh, we have rolling starts obviously. So that was new as well. And then obviously I'm used to it now, but also you can race a lot harder over here. Um, there was, kind of blocking rules that basically meant that you couldn't really block at all in Australia unless it was the first or last lap. So you, you literally, it was just a big drafting fest at, at home and you had to kind of plan your race out and be patient where in America, it's you can fight a lot harder and people race a lot harder. And as you would expect, as you move up, it's just a lot tougher and more aggressive. So I would have to say I probably enjoy America, the racing in America a bit more just because you can fight a lot harder and, I wouldn't say get away with stuff because, you know, th- there's a rule and, and if you break the rules, you get in trouble, which is correct. But you can definitely kind of fight a bit, fight harder and more fairly, I would say, over here, which I enjoy. Let me ask, have you had a chance to get to know or connect with uh, who we refer to as the king of all Kiwis, Mr. Five-Time Champion Scott Dixon, or the world's craziest Australian, Will Power. (laughs) 
curious, uh, you know, in your first year over here, even just at the uh, the first level of the road to Indy, whether you've been able to connect with a couple of the big names who I'm sure you want to emulate and continue to fly the flag in the years to come. Oh, for sure. Um, Scott Dixon's always been a massive hero of mine, and uh, watching him win in the Indy 500 in 2008 was when I was actually eight years old. I still remember that pretty. <laughs> I remember that pretty uh, clearly. So at Road America after I uh, won, and I went up and oh, I had the opportunity to go meet him and his trainer, and uh, it was pretty awesome to have someone like him reach out and and just talk to him. You know, just learn off the things that he's done and just literally just being able to speak to him was so awesome because he's a hero of mine and a massive reason of why I wanted to kind of follow this path and this dream. So speaking to Scott was pretty awesome. And I guess having him in your corner is invaluable. So yeah, being able to catch up with him is definitely one of the highlights that I've experienced this year so far. I love it. We'll keep doing it. He's uh, he's got one of the biggest hearts in any paddock and is certainly always looking to help anyone that he can. So don't be afraid to go ask questions or hang around. He's not the type to, uh, he'll let you know if he wants you to go away. So until you reach that point, you're all good. Let's, uh, let's go to Peter Croft who asks kind of staying on this transitional theme. What do you like most about being in the United States? And then he also asks, what do you miss most about being at home down under? I guess the thing that I love about America is a lot of things. Obviously, the racing is uh, – everything's probably bigger and better, to sum it up, compared to where I'm from. Um, and that's not trying to sound ungrateful of where I came from or anything. It's just there's so much opportunity over here. You know, like I literally have gotten a drive from being able just to win the uh, championship in a shootout and it's given me this amazing opportunity and i don't think there's anywhere else in the world that you can you can say that oh that that's even possible for that to happen and um that's definitely probably my, one of my favorite parts about this country um what i miss about home uh, i'd probably just have to say you know your family and friends um obviously it's probably one of the little downsides about chasing a dream and, and moving away from home is just leaving all your friends and family behind but um yeah, there's not there's not many negatives about moving over here, I think, but that's probably the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. They didn't like you that much, to be honest, so they're kind of kind of yeah, happy to right. have you out of the house. So, <laughs> that's uh, what I think about anyway. <laughs> all right, let's get down to our last couple of questions. This one comes in from Brett Ross, who says, "Hunter, your USF 2000 bio says you like sugar." So he <laughs> asks. I mean, granted, I don't know if I've met human beings like, no, sugar, boy, that's that's the worst. Uh, He says, what's your favorite American candy? And how about any of your favorite candy from home? Uh, So, all right, you need to, uh, well, hopefully, hopefully you're not just pounding this stuff all day long. But, uh, all right, give give us the insights here. Well, unfortunately, I'm I'm pretty tall, so I've got to stay real lean and make sure that, I have a strict diet and all that kind of not fun stuff. Um, but when I can, I love like anything that's like sugar or candy. So you got in America, like there's these Reese's peanut butter cups, which I love. They're probably my favorite. Um, I, I didn't really, I hadn't heard of them at home. And then I remember, I think it was, I was coming back from, I think the Chris Griffiths test and we're in the airport and I, 
I literally, I was buying like a bottle of water or something and there was like these little pieces of peanut butter cups just sitting there conveniently and I was like, oh, I may as well try one. And I remember eating it and just going back and buying it like two two more packets and just, yeah, <laughs> kind of pigged out a little bit on those. So You're hooked. That is definitely my favorite American candy by far is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups or anything, anything with peanut butter and chocolate I think is pretty safe. <laughs> so I think we've now just established the fact that any fans coming to uh, future Road to Indy races, if you see a very tall Kiwi, make sure you're <laughs> handing him Reese's peanut butter cups. And it might be better than spraying champagne. You know, maybe maybe you just get a big old bucket of uh, Reese's peanut butter cups in victory lane. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, this these could be. Just think about when you're doing future contracts to drive for Roger Penske, Chip Ganassi. You know, you have your needs. They better take care of it. If someone handed me a Reese's peanut butter cup on the podium, I would probably hug them. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our last question here, and I saved this this one for last. Uh, this comes from Michael Goodyear, who says, having followed in the footsteps of famous talents like Craig Lowndes, Jamie Wincup, Chaz Mostert, to name a few, in dominating the Australian Formula Four Championship, what attracted you to IndyCar and the road to Indy rather than Australian supercars? That's a good question, actually, as well. Um, it's kind of a pretty, I guess, straightforward answer. It's, you know, I, I, I think supercars is great, and I think the racing is awesome. And, you know, you know there's many other categories other than IndyCar that are, that are as, as close as, as competitive as supercars, but... I've always just had that kind of dream of coming over here and, and chasing the IndyCar uh, path. I, I Again, it's kind of like when I was – I never really decided to be a race car driver. I always just have wanted to. It's the same with IndyCar. You know, I think definitely, like I said, when I was watching Scott win um, the Indy 500 in 2008 with the, you know, the New Zealand flag and everything, and it's like, I want to do that. You know what I mean? So that's kind of – kind of it i've just always wanted to chase that dream and it's always been my my kind of ambition to do that so not not saying that supercars is is not something that i would you know i'd turn down but definitely indycar is my preference and my dream so that's kind of uh, i guess the honest answer hunter it's been a pleasure having you on for the first time i'm positive it will not be the last to know you still have <laughs> Lots of racing to do this season, chasing down Braden Eves and whatnot as two of you are fighting for the USF 2000 titles. So looking forward to watching that battle play out and obviously wishing you the best of luck for the rest of that bid. Thank you very much, Marshall. It's, uh, It's been a pleasure. All right, mate. Well, we'll speak soon. Speak soon. Thank you, man. Thanks, Hunter.